0: All right. So if you guys, I know some of y'all do um, sometimes like the weeknight trivia at different places around town, if you ever do that, and if you ever were thinking like, hey, maybe we should invite Drew to join us, you're welcome to do that, but don't expect me to be an asset to your team because I'm terrible. Um, hopefully I can, yeah, there we go, me and Karina. Me and hopefully I can be a good friend to you and we can have fun together, but I won't help you with trivia at all and we'll lose unless... For some reason around town, maybe at a new hip pub, maybe this would be just weird enough to work in Memphis, probably not, unless it were Bible trivia, which I don't know how lame that makes me, but I am pretty good at Bible trivia. I've put in a lot of work, you know, lots of money getting a seminary degree, so I'm I'm decent at Bible trivia. So here's a quick Bible trivia question for you uh, to get things kicked off this morning. Think back on everything that Jesus had to say and talk about, out of all the things Jesus said during his earthly ministry, what do you think? If you wanna answer, you can, but if you just want to consider this redundant question, you can go that route as well. What do you think Jesus talked about more than anything else? What did Jesus talk about more than anything else? Faith, that's not right. Sorry, Janina. If there's Bible trivia happening around town, invite me. I'm just kidding. Um, Jesus talked more more than anything else about the kingdom, about the kingdom of God, way more, way more than Jesus talked about anything else. The kingdom of God. In fact, I'd say that Maybe like we could summarize the whole of Jesus's earthly ministry as teaching his followers who can teach their followers, who can teach their followers about this kingdom of God. And even in in and of himself, Jesus embodying the kingdom of God. And I'd say that the kingdom of God is, at least for me, it's sort of been like this, this linchpin. Like the more that I see it and the more that I understand it and become aware to it, the more it changes the way that I see the story of Jesus, the story of scripture as a whole, and even how I fit into my story in the story of Jesus. So the kingdom of God. This morning's readings teach us a lot about the kingdom of God, because I think it's all over the place on every page of scripture. But I'll point out to you two things, two important elements of the kingdom of God that we see, especially in this story, this fascinating story about Naaman. And then I have two Um, actions or invitations or encouragements that I want to um, encourage you towards this morning. So, uh, we read this fascinating story in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's captured the imaginations of lots of people over the past centuries. And in this section of scripture, we meet a powerful, wealthy, successful man named Naaman, who's a commander in the Syrian army. But Naaman's life is a contradiction, because though he's powerful and influential and successful and wealthy, the text tells us that he's plagued by a disease that money, success, power can't cure or fix. The text calls it leprosy. Now, what Naaman had, what he suffered with is probably different than what comes to your mind when you hear the word leprosy because in this time, that word was used to describe a wide range of skin diseases and skin conditions. But nonetheless, we know that Naaman suffered and that despite his power, he was powerless over his suffering. Now, in the first couple verses, the, story, the author of this story brilliantly juxtaposes Naaman and the second character we meet in the story. Naaman in verse one is described as great. I'll show show you the Hebrew word in case you're into Bible trivia and can read Hebrew. Um, so the Hebrew is on the screen. Um, this word is, uh, the Hebrew word is gadol, gadol. And it means great or big or significant or large or important. And then in verse two, there's another word used to describe this Um, Servant girl in Naaman's household. And that word is katan, katan. Katan means small, unimportant, insignificant. There's a direct contrast, a direct juxtaposition between these two characters, Naaman, this powerful, wealthy elite in his society, and this small slave girl from the people of Israel who in this society is unimportant and small and insignificant. So right from the start, this story flies in the face of culture at this time and even our modern culture because this story is a story of, this wealthy and important and powerful man who's presented as ultimately powerless. And instead, it's the seemingly powerless, insignificant, unimportant, young, small girl who's presented as the powerful one, the one who has the answer, who can enact real change in Naaman's life. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this, and I think this is true, because this story, like I said, has, has captured imaginations and hearts over the centuries. As I read this, like, I love it. You know, there's just something in you that's like, yes, like we love, we love as a people, this sort of underdog story. And I think the reason is, is that you and I were created for this kingdom where the script is flipped. We're created for this kingdom where it's, It's not the powerful and the wealthy and the elite who have it all, but instead it's a seemingly insignificant and unimportant. It's the humbled who are exalted and it's the exalted who are humbled. And this is one of the most essential characteristics of Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in. In fact, let me show you a few places. uh, In Luke chapter four, This is important because this is the way Jesus introduces himself when he launches onto the scene. This is the way that he introduces his ministry, what he's going to be about for his years on earth doing ministry. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It would have been utterly surprising and shocking, and it was because the religious leaders of the day responded like they wanted to be done with this man. Utterly shocking and astounding and surprising that Jesus came to bring good news, not to the rich, the elite, the powerful, but to the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. This is all over the place in the gospels. In fact, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus is giving his famous beatitudes. One of his blessings says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. This list could go, like we could just keep going on and just give you a couple more. Matthew chapter 20, the last shall be first and the first will be last. In Luke chapter 14, all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This kingdom of Jesus is an upside-down kingdom where the down and out matter. It's a counter-cultural, counter-intuitive kingdom where those at the bottom aren't on the bottom, but those at the bottom are on the top. And those who are at the top in our culture's eyes aren't at the top, but they're on the bottom in this kingdom. Jesus had a lot to say and teach about this kingdom, but Jesus also embodies this upside downness in and of himself. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says that the son of man did not come to be served like a rich, powerful, elite, wealthy, influential person. The son of man did not come to be served, but instead to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul is reflecting back on this essential characteristic of Jesus and his kingdom in Philippians chapter two and his heart is moved to worship and he records this hymn that may have been popular in Paul's day in Philippians chapter two where Paul writes Jesus being in very nature God did not count equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being born in human likeness And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom where even God himself lowers himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what does this mean for you? There's the obvious application, of course, that, Okay, well, therefore, for those of us who want to be about this kingdom of Jesus, the poor are blessed. It's not the wealthy and the elite, but it's, it's the poor, the oppressed. Those are the ones who are blessed in this kingdom. So those places matter. Those people matter. Those people have space with us. We need to, like Jesus, love and go after and care for and be about, be in relationship with those people because those are the people at the top. But there's... Um, a less, obvious, a less obvious application that I want to I put forth for you to consider this morning, and I already hinted at it. Um, I think that this is something that we sort of get intuitively. Um, this is sort of an implicit value for a lot of people who are drawn to Christ's city. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, this is, like, this is something that you probably get deep down in your bones. You're probably about Like, um, Jamin gets some amens during his sermons. I don't get a lot of amens, you know? But if y'all, like, if if y'all were an amen-saying folk, like, when I was preaching, like, there'd probably be some amens going on as I'm talking about this, right? Like, Jesus came for the poor, the oppressed, the blind. Like, those are the people that Jesus, the blessed are the poor in spirit. Like, there should be some amens happening right there, right? (laughs) Amen. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Like we get that intuitively. It's a value that many of us share implicitly. And so I just want you to consider that that maybe that exposes that deep down in your heart and your soul, deep in your bones, there's this longing that you have, a longing for a kingdom that's different than the kingdom in D.C. or that you see on Twitter No matter who you are, whether you say that you follow Jesus or not, I think there's this longing that you have for this upside-down kingdom that Jesus in his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, this kingdom that Jesus came to bring into the world, this kingdom that is bursting forth in our midst, you have this longing for the kingdom. So my challenge, my encouragement is to lean into that, to consider like, why, why is that longing deep down in my bones? What does that longing that is there have, have to say to me? And then to consider what it might mean to say, yeah, Jesus, I want to be about you and your kingdom. So this kingdom we see in the story of Naaman is for, uh, not the powerful, the elite. Those are the people who are humbled and the humbled are exalted. Second thing we see about the kingdom, uh, we see it in Naaman himself. Naaman himself. In this day, in in the Old Testament, God's kingdom is represented by his people who are called Israel. Um, God's people in God's place that God had given them, enjoying and experiencing God's presence, represented by the temple that was in their midst. So God's kingdom is, is represented by Israel. But there's something important about Naaman that you may have caught as we were reading the passage. Naaman is not a part of Israel. Naaman's not an insider, Naaman is an outsider. Naaman is the other, the outsider, the excluded. Naaman is even the enemy just a few chapters before this, there's a story of this Syrian army that Naaman leads defeating the Israelite people. So Naaman isn't just the other or the outsider, not an insider. Naaman is, in fact, in and of himself, the enemy. And we see something important, that God's mercy extends even to those who are the farthest out. God's mercy extends not just to insiders, but to outsiders, to the other, to the enemy. You see this in the gospel reading as well. In Luke chapter 17, we read a story about Jesus walking along and 10 men who are lepers crying out, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, have pity on us and heal us. And then of course, like Jesus often does, he sends them away, and they find themselves healed, cured of the leprosy that had plagued them and caused them to be outsiders in the community. But then we see that there's one man who comes back to offer his gratitude to Jesus. He's moved to worship by what he just experienced. And Luke inserts it there in this interesting way, I think that's meant to grab our attention in verse 16 in Luke chapter 17, We see, and he was a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. Just a few chapters before this, there's this parable that Jesus told that's a famous parable called the Good Samaritan. Now that language has become common in our day, like the Good Samaritan. And it's, it's, not a negative thing, it's actually a positive thing. Like, oh man, you're such a good Samaritan to that person, right? Like you went out of your way to help that person. You were merciful and kind and loving. But in this day, in Jesus's day, the idea of a quote unquote, good Samaritan would just not have made any sense. Like there would not have been a category in their brains to just comprehend what Jesus is talking about. This is a complete and utter oxymoron and contradiction because to these first century Jewish people, A Samaritan can never be good. Samaritans are the outsiders, the outcasts, the excluded ones. And so we see something important here in this passage and over and over and over in Jesus's ministry, because Jesus embodies this kingdom. We see that the mercy of God extends not just to those on the inside, but to those on the outside too. Now, of course, that is sweet, sweet and good news because I know that many of us in this room have experienced before what it's like to be on the outside, to be excluded. And you can know as you look at Jesus, that Jesus is for you. The love and presence and mercy of God extends to you, not just to those on the inside, whatever that means in 2019. But it also means for you that you can do the deep heart, hard work of considering who for you is the outsider, the other, even the enemy. Who is that person for you? And perhaps you can experience deep heart transformation and change as you imagine like Jesus being for that person. The mercy of God extending even to that person. That's the kingdom of God, this kingdom that Jesus came to bring. So those two important elements, right? That the exalted are humbled in this kingdom of God and the humbled are exalted. And then secondly, that God's mercy, God's love, God's presence extends not just to insiders, but to the outsiders, even enemies. But there are two challenges that I see in these passages that I wanna present to you. I want you to consider. The first is, um, as we look at the story of Naaman, it gets pretty interesting when he makes his way to Samaria, which was a part of Israel at the time where Elisha called here in this text, Elisha, the man of God, a prophet of God, the place where Elisha lived. So when Naaman makes his way there, things get pretty interesting because Naaman shows up at Elisha's house and surprisingly, Elisha like, doesn't even open. I just imagine Naaman and like all of his um, entourage with him and all the stuff he brought like standing at the door and Elisha doesn't even come out, right? Like Elisha just sends people. I imagine them like going out the back door and Elisha, I don't know what he's doing in the house. They go out the back door and they show up with Naaman and they're like, hey, here are the instructions. You wanna be healed? Here's how it's gonna go down. All you have to do is go to the Jordan River and dip yourself, cleanse yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you will receive the thing that you want. You will receive the thing that you desire, the thing that you're asking for. And then you saw when this happened, Naaman went insane, right? Naaman's just raging. He's going crazy. This important man shows up and you're not even gonna come meet me face to face. He's just going crazy. Side note, I, I typed, I, I, let, me, let me read to you what I typed and then I'll share the story around it. Side note, if you cannot accept powerlessness in your life, then you like Naaman, you'll find that rage is inevitable. If you cannot accept powerlessness in your life, then rage is inevitable. Naaman can't accept these powerless here. Naaman, who's used to being powerful, is looking for something that in his power he can conquer and earn. And Elisha gives him something that's so simple, that's almost foolish. The prescription that Elisha gives to this powerful man is to embrace your powerlessness and simply to surrender. So, if you find yourself raging all the time, perhaps it's because you're still trying to hold on to power instead of accepting that you don't really have any power. So, Friday, sitting at city and state, and I'm just like going away, like just ty- typing this, typing all this, typing this out. And I type those two sentences, and I'm like, man, like that's been my week this week, right? And it didn't even hit me until I went back and read and I'm like, what, like this this is for me. Like this week, I found myself showing up at home after a long days at work, tired and a little bit grumpy. And y'all know if your parents, like you show up at the end of the day and like, you've still got a lot left, right? Like those two or three hours you have with your small kids, those, they're not the easiest part of your day. And like, I found myself just, like with a four-year-old who just will not listen to anything that we say, like I find all this rage like going on inside of me and some of it even like brimming over the surface. And so then I type that Friday at City and State and I'm like, that's it, that's it. Like I'm not powerful over this four-year-old. <laughs> even though I look like I'm a lot bigger than him, like I'm not powerful here. I'm powerless and I have to accept that. And the prescription, like the prescription that Elisha gives Naaman, is simply to surrender. Simply to surrender. So Naaman's raging and losing his mind. And then I find it funny that it's actually Naaman's servants who confront him in his rage. Think about how courageous of a thing that is, right? Like these servants to confront their leader Naaman, And Naaman sees the wisdom that they have to give him. And so he's like, okay, I guess I'll go try it out. He dips in the Jordan River seven times. And of course he's refreshed and he's healed and he experiences newness of life. So the question for you is, the challenge is, for Naaman, the prescription was right in front of him. He wanted to be this complex, difficult thing that he could conquer and overcome and earn, but it was right in front of him. So simple, it almost felt foolish, so simple that it was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was offensive, offensive. It was offensive to him. So what is that thing for you? Like, what's the thing right in front of you? the invitation to newness of life. The thing right in front of you that is is just so simple. You have all these problems that are complex and big, and they are. Like life is really hard, right? And you have all this going on all around you all the time. But perhaps the thing to help you experience newness of life, recovery, refreshment is just right in front of you. What's the simple thing that if you surrender, you could experience and where you could find newness of life. Maybe it's as simple as like taking a step to meet a pastor or leader of this church, like just to meet him, just so we can be in relationship with you. Maybe it's showing up early next week. So you can do some centering prayer in the garden with Diane, or maybe it's, it's meeting with Diane And like Amanda expressed earlier, maybe you relate to that. Like there are walls that you've experienced and put up in your life. And like, it's as simple as like taking this step. It's not easy. It's scary. But taking this step, having this meeting and experiencing some of those walls begin to tear down. What's the simple thing right in front of you? The second thing, the last invitation challenge I have for you this morning is, One of the themes, especially in this gospel reading in Luke chapter 17 is this theme of cultivating gratitude, cultivating gratitude. The Samaritan comes back, Luke chapter 17, verses 15 and 16 say that when he saw that he was healed, he came back to Jesus, praising him in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus's feet and thanked him and thanked him. Cultivating gratitude. Our culture is increasingly a cynical and hopeless culture. And nothing combats cynicism and inspires hope like cultivating gratitude. Nothing combats cynicism and inspires hope by cultivating gratitude. Now, gratitude is a simple thing. Because we're cynical people, we think, oh, that seems too elementary. Like, that's what you got for me? True? Like, just be thankful? Yeah, yeah. Because nothing combats cynicism and inspires hope like cultivating gratitude. In fact, I got to see this, like, taste this just a little bit this morning. Um, every Sunday morning at 9 30, Everyone who's volunteering and serving and behind the scenes or up front, wherever it is, whoever's serving that particular Sunday, we all gather downstairs in Walker Hall for a time, um, a fellowship, praying together, um, enjoying community together, sweet time. And so this morning we read the Psalm that Stacy read as our call to worship, Psalm 111. It's just a Psalm of gratitude, expressing thanksgiving to God. And we all just went, went around and shared things that we're grateful for. Some things were big things, And some things were not like world-changing things. Like, we're grateful that it finally feels like fall in Memphis. Yeah, and like, there's just this sweet sense in the room. And I think what it was is a little less cynicism and a little more hope. Because gratitude acknowledges the giver. When you're grateful, you're acknowledging that you have something that's a gift, a gift that's been given to you. And so when you practice gratitude, you practice like, yeah, there's a giver. This is a gift that I have. And there is a person, there's this divine person who's good and who loves me. And there's no more room for cynicism, and there's lots more room for hope. So every week after our sermon at Christ City, we um, participate in communion together and in some church traditions, um, communion is actually called this, this fancy word called Eucharist. Have you ever heard that word Eucharist? Um, so maybe like if you grew up Catholic, you had weekly Eucharist. Um, Eucharist is another word for, for holy communion. And it's beautiful because this word Eucharist comes from a Greek word that simply means Thanksgiving. So when we come to the table every week, It's an opportunity for us to cultivate thanksgiving. It's an opportunity for us to remember and to even in this mysterious way, participate in this divine gift, this tremendous gift that you've been given God himself in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. So that's my encouragement for you this morning. As you come forward for communion, consider those two things. What is the simple invitation right in front of you? Like what's your Jordan River? Like just jump into it, you know? What's been keeping you from taking that step? And then what does it look like for you to cultivate gratitude? As you take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or juice, maybe just in your heart, like experience a little bit more thanksgiving and thankfulness for Jesus and for how much he loves you and for what he's done for you. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for these stories that you've given us. The story of Naaman, the healing that you gave him. Story of Jesus, mercifully hearing and healing these 10 people who who needed him. Thank you for all that it has to teach us. And Lord, I pray for every person gathered in this room. Would you make that thing that's right in front of us, the invitation that you have for us for more, more life, recovery, healing, peace, mercy, whatever it is that we need, would you make that clear to us? Like, what is that step that you're calling and inviting us to this morning? And would you stir up in our hearts just tons and tons of gratitude. We have so much to be thankful for, especially as we come to this table and remember and participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen.